This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Are we getting gradually and gradually more tired of living under these restrictions, considering that so many countries in other parts of the world are seemingly going ever so closer to what they would consider a normal life. I'm thinking about countries like the United Kingdom and the United States of America, to be exact. And is this COVID fatigue, this suspected COVID fatigue in and amongst the South African citizenship justified when you consider everything that the South African citizenship has seen transpire over the course of our fight against the coronavirus pandemic. Joining me to have this discussion, I'm pleased to be joined by a regular contributor to the COVID report. We typically have him as a guest whenever we are spoken to by our Commander-in-Chief President Cyril Ramaphosa, but I completely and wholeheartedly trust his insight on this matter. We are joined by independent political analyst, Mr. Jamie Mighty. Jamie, good evening and welcome back onto the COVID report. It's always awesome to have you on. Good evening to you and good evening to the listeners. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's start at the very beginning. The conjecture surrounding Dr. Zweli Mkize and um, his being removed or being placed on special leave as Minister of Health with a Minister of Tourism, Mamuloko Kubai Ngubane, serving as Acting Minister of Health until further notice. In your opinion, how, does, how, how do these developments destabilize the ongoing fight against the virus here in South Africa? Well, I think that there's not going to be a maximum impact in terms of the ongoing COVID-19 management in South Africa. Let's start with what is the current climate and the the current tactic. The current tactic right now is containment. And containment is not necessarily about flattening the curve. Containment is just about managing the level in which there is a surge, so to speak. So it's about trying to reduce the rate of spread as far as possible. And um, all of that requires simply uh, continued observation on the ground by law enforcement authorities, by people who operate, um, you know, facilities such as malls and those who are running events. And um, fundamentally, the vaccine strategy can operate without Uh, a minister, because once all of the agreements have been signed, once all of the decisions have been made around vaccine allocation, then it becomes a bureaucratic matter as opposed to a matter where you necessarily need, um, you know, a minister there blow by blow. And obviously, um, the people who have been part of the process will be able to pass on information to anybody who's sitting in a temporary position. So I don't think that you're going to see much of a disruption to the COVID, um, you know, containment strategy. However, we are not moving as fast as we could with the vaccinations themselves, and that really could be the issue. Indeed, and I'm going to latch on to that because it serves as a neat segue to my next question. One of the reasons I thought that you would be a great fit for this conversation is because I know that you are very active on social media. You are very active in uh, echoing your thoughts and sentiments on not only the political scene here in South Africa, but the political scene in other parts of the African continent. Can you talk 
me through the various observations you've made about the general sentiment on social media by South Africans, the many South Africans that you follow and interact with on social media surrounding our government's continued efforts to curb and fight this virus and whether or not the commentary you've seen on social media can be seen as an accurate representation of the greater citizenship of South Africa. Well, I think it's important to outline that there, there are two different strands of conversation that occur on social media when it comes to COVID-19. The first conversation um, is the one around vaccines. People are frustrated with the pace of vaccinations. People are unhappy with the way that vaccinations are going. That's one conversation. There's another conversation also which needs to be highlighted, which occurs on social media, is the conversation around vaccine hesitancy. And there are many people who are still expressing a lack of, um, you know, willingness to take the vaccine. Uh, distrust around the vaccine continues to exist. And I think that those are competing narratives that occur. So having said that, there's also the reality on the ground. And the reality on the ground is people are not necessarily paying close attention to COVID-19 guidance and protocols when they are socializing. And uh, when you, um, you know, take part in certain house parties, when you visit certain uh, communities, you can see that people are not actually uh, paying much attention to this. It has now become a thing where um, the mask mandate, if you will, the sanitization occurs in taxis, in the mall, in the train, um, but not necessarily in home-related events and in social activities. And you can even see people shaking hands sometimes. Um, so those are the challenges that we are dealing with where it has now become almost like I do this in public, but I don't do this in the privacy of my home. And that I think is what is also posing a challenge. So those are the different uh, perceptions that exist uh, around the management of the vaccine. I mean, South Africa right now is sitting on 1.3 million vaccinations reached. However, other countries are sitting on significantly more. For example, in Morocco, they have vaccinated 9.2 million Um, citizens with at least one dose at this particular point. So that's something that is worth uh, considering. 16% of their population is fully vaccinated right now versus 2.3% in South Africa. And that is in part because uh, the Moroccan government uh, actually made their procurements early. So there are two competing conversations around why don't we have vaccines. One is like, no, the global uh, big countries uh, hoarded the vaccine. Uh, But the other one is also that some African countries really were late um, in making their procurements. They over-relied on COVAX, and they were hoping that downstream they could get the vaccines for free. But obviously that means that there were multiple delays that were going to be encountered as a result of that. Indeed. Let's get to the 
the, the, the crux of the conversation we are having on this edition of the show. This idea of COVID fatigue, considering that this pandemic has been part of our lives for close to a year and a half now, considering that we've spent the majority of this last year plus that has passed under um, lockdown at varying degrees of severity. We had the, we experienced the highs of highs in severe lockdown at level five, the lows and lo- the lowest of lows as far as the least severe levels of lockdown and this perpetual uh, ebb and flow between lockdown level one and other higher levels of lockdown as the various waves of the virus have swept across South Africa. Do you, do you think that this idea of COVID fatigue is justifiable for the citizenship to have? And in what ways do you think this needs to be effectively addressed, either by the citizens themselves or the initiatives that government needs to take in showing leadership to the people that elected them into those positions of power to help curb this supposed COVID fatigue that's hanging in the air? Well, I think um, it's important to, uh, to point out that for some people, there was, there's not a COVID fatigue because they never really bought into the regulations to begin with. And you'll find that people would say that, you know, at Garci and several other places, there is no COVID and people are continuing with their lives as per normal. And I think that one group has never really participated in uh, the COVID, um, you know, regulatory environment uh, as, as much as possible. And some people have only worn the mask ceremoniously in that, you know, there's always like the mask is not covering the nose or the mask is very loose or the mask is, is like a, a very, very loose cloth. So there's that. But then when it comes to the rest of the population that has been trying to observe some level of um, COVID adherence, there are two categories there as well. There is a category that is right now very, very fatigued, uh, as as you described it, and because they are tired, they're exhausted, um, all of this stuff can be quite draining because you have to wash your hands, yeah, it's cold, you wash your hands, you have to do this, you have to sanitize surfaces, and, and people can get tired, and when they get tired, that's when they get sloppy and that's when they put themselves at risk. And, and then they are also like a group of people who are still, you know, as much as, as, as everyone else is tired, still vigilant, still very appreciative of the risk. So then the question then becomes, how do we deal with the two other groups and what can be done to conscientize the two other groups? One, those who never really cared anyway, and two, those who are beginning to, uh, you know, miss a few steps here and there. I think uh, you know, one of the things that needs to be done is that government has to continue with its uh, education campaigns, with its messaging, with advertising, with all of that to keep, um, you know, the message fresh in people's minds, to let them remember that, hey, this thing has not gone away. People are still dying. That messaging is still important. And if you don't do it, some people even more will begin to slip up because if you stop hearing about something for some people, then that thing, you know, it subsides subsides from their mind, you know. Um, so, so, so there's necessity for repetition. Um, I'm not sure there's much else that can be done at this particular point in terms of getting people on board. And really with the slowness of the vaccine rollout and, you know, the continuing skepticism around certain things, it's going to be really difficult um, to counteract some of the COVID, uh, you know, the vaccine hesitancy to counteract 
the COVID fatigue and lethargy that exists in society. There are multiple factors here, and it's quite a complex uh, public health problem. And I think all we can do is continue to have these conversations in the hope that those of us who are still, you know, uh, trying to um, be COVID-sensitive in a way, continue to do what needs to be done in order to protect ourselves and those around us. Now, Jamie, you mentioned the role that government has to play in the continued efforts to educate the populace, to educate the citizenship of the country, to relay this information to those on the ground that matters. On a recent edition of the COVID report, we had the president of uh, Contralesa as a guest. And one of the things that he mentioned in the conversation we had with him was the was what he perceived as a severe lack of effort on government's part to relay the messaging of the importance of adhering to the uh, the health and safety regulations, the relaying of information about the COVID-19 virus, the ways in which the COVID-19 virus can pose a threat to people's health, and the various steps that people can take to protect themselves from contracting this virus in a method that the people on the ground could easily grasp, in a way that the people on the ground could easily understand for the benefit of those who might not, for example, uh, be able to depend on English as a first language or might not um, have readily ready access to social media or a television to tune into the news or a radio to tune in to uh, hear reports about that. Is that indicative of the government's overall efforts over the year plus that has passed in their efforts of uh, fighting this pandemic and in your opinion is it for for the benefit of the pessimists out there and I, I, I do note um, we spoke about social media earlier and the collective sense of, of dejection and uh, in some circles anger and frustration echoed on social media by uh, various uh, people echoing their frustrations with the way in which so many of these issues have been uh, handled and taken care of. In your opinion, would it be fair at this stage of the fight against the virus to give any kind of rating or to or to make any kind of declarative conclusions on how well or how poorly the government has handled the um, the relaying of information over the course of the fight against this pandemic? Well, I think you know uh, ratings are always tough because people don't like to uh, hear themselves rated lowly. You know, especially once you go below seven, then people get nervous and emotional. Um, but I think um, if the leaders of Contralesa have said that they feel like the communication in their communities has not been effective, we have to take them at their word because they do know their communities quite well and they are on the ground with those communities and they can make the ascertainments that, hey, in these rural areas, the communication is not spreading in effective ways. Uh, people are either over-reliant on social media, TV, and radio. And in my community, those platforms of communication don't exist. And maybe there's a need in those communities for people to go door-to-door, providing awareness, providing education. And um, that would be fair crit- critique and criticism from the leaders of Contralesa because they obviously are on the ground and, and we can't gainsay them with no reason um, at this particular point. And it, it is it is something important because, you know, oftentimes communication is, is, is focused on suburban areas, metropolitan areas, uh, 
to the expense and detriment of areas that are more, you know, um, distant, more rural, and more marginalized from mainstream societal conversations as if citizens don't live there. So I think um, those uh, observations are astute. Those observations, uh, as they are put before us right now, we don't have any reason to uh, refute them. We don't have any reason to gainsay them. Uh, and we have to take them at face value in the absence of any contradictory analysis, evidence, or, you know, input from other entities. And I, I, I think that's a fair comment to make and perhaps contribute to an assessment of the overall lay of the land. That being said, I think that, uh, you know, the epicenter, so to speak, of the virus remain the urban communities. They remain spaces such as Western Cape, Gauteng, and we still need to be able to have conversations about how to mitigate COVID-19 risk and spread in those particular areas. But again, as I said, with the slow, um, you know, vaccine rollout, I think um, non-pharmaceutical measures have a limit, and that limit obviously is dependent on, you know, proper observation by the population. And that proper observation, as we've discussed, is going down. So that's really the, the, that's where we are right now in, in the dynamics of COVID-19 today. Indeed. Now, I'd like to take a moment to um, talk through the local government elections that are still scheduled to come up this year. Um, Reports have surfaced as of 40 minutes ago, according to the screen I'm looking at, that the IFP is calling for the postponement of the local government elections scheduled for the 27th of October due to an increase in COVID-19 infections and and the danger of the third wave. Can you talk me through your observation on the timing of the local government elections being in the middle of this fight against this pandemic and the potential for the various political parties jockeying for favor and position among the citizenship over the course of contesting these local government elections for them to make sort of, and I don't mean to paint any of the political and political parties involved in a pessimistic light when I say this, but I'm curious to find out your insight and your opinion on the potential for the, the various political parties involved to use uh, COVID-19 as a means to gain favor with, with the section of the citizenship that they are trying to get votes from, from the local government elections. And what, do you, what is your take on the possible postponement of these local government elections? And when do you think would be a much more appropriate time for them to take place? Well, that question is interesting, and let's start off with uh, level one. Uh, who stands to benefit um, from an election in 2021? I would say to you that opposition parties that are well-organized would stand to benefit from this particular electoral cycle because the current uh, conditions of this particular electoral cycle are such that it's occurring in a situation where the economy has grown from last year, but the growth has been jobless. And uh, we've seen the unemployment data reflect that there's been an increase in unemployment. Over 7 out of 10 young people um, are unemployed. And uh, there's been multiple job losses in the sectors which affect, you know, the most poor communities, elementary workers, domestic workers, uh, and and several other sectors have seen a large loss. So combined with the continued corruption scandals and divisions within the ANC, opposition parties stand to pick up the numbers uh, in that kind of an electoral cycle. So that's who stands to gain. Uh, specifically, 
Can COVID-19 be used as a campaign issue? Absolutely. There are certain communities that are frustrated by the vaccine rollout, that are frustrated by some of the things that were done during um, the various stages of lockdown, be it cigarette bans or alcohol bans. And uh, those people are not likely to vote and support the party that imposed those particular uh, restrictions on them. Now, going to look at the issue of whether or not um, you know, it is prudent to have an election in the middle of a pandemic. I think it's worth noting in the first instance that this third wave is not as, uh, you know, drastic and serious as the other waves that we've went through. And maybe that's because we're early in the wave, uh, but also it may be as a result of the various containment strategies actually proving to be efficient. So that's something that we ought to bear in mind that um, in as much as there is a third wave, it does not seem to be taking the shape of the previous um, second wave or first wave. And, and having said that, um, and looking at other regional actors which have held elections, there have been several elections in Africa um, since the advent of COVID-19. Some of them were ill-advised, but some of them were properly done. And it's worth considering even that America had an election and they relied on a postal um, system in order to do that. Uh, uh, Realistically speaking, that is not something that can happen um, within South Africa properly and procedurally, uh, just because uh, post offices are closing, they've been understaffed for a very long time, and the the reliability issues within the South African Postal Service are quite, quite high. Um, You know, the mail has uh, historically been unreliable. So what that what that means, therefore, is that you would have to have the election in an orthodox fashion, where people have to go into voting booths. That I mean, if you were to do it in that way, you probably would need more than one day, uh, simply because trying to observe all of the restrictions, the distance protocols, etc., would uh, complicate the process. But it doesn't seem like um, having them is impossible. It just seems as if having them would be very difficult. So. Having considered all of that, however, it does seem like, uh, you know, there are some super spreader risks in the campaigning side of things because as we've discussed, people go into, uh, into homes and don't necessarily observe COVID-19 protocols and restrictions, especially when we're talking about, you know, communities such as uh, the townships and communities which have high levels of population density that could pose a risk. And that's really where the conundrum lies with this particular question. It's being considered uh, by the former uh, Deputy Chief Justice Tikang Musineke. It's being uh, motivated for by different political entities. I think the EFF have said that there needs to be a delay. The IFP has said that there needs to be delay, to be a delay. Worth considering, however, is that if you then say elections must be next year, maybe in October in 2022, then now there's a gap of just a year and a half almost before the next election, that being the national level election. And what I anticipate is that if there's a delay this year, there may not actually be municipal elections next year. The reason why I say that is because once you are in 2022, you will find that some people will then say, this is going to be a waste of money. Let us synchronize uh, all of these elections and have one electoral cycle wherein people are voting both for municipal and national. Because uh, if it's 2022 and the next election is, is May of 2024, what's the point, right? What's the point of having two different campaign periods, 18 months within each other? It strains political party budgets. It keeps everyone in campaign mode. Uh, that affects governance. That affects a variety of factors, uh, including within the media. And, and what you will 
possibly see people then saying, let's synchronize these elections and have them all in, in early 2024. And that's really part of the chess game that some political parties are playing using the issue of COVID-19 spread. They're not really trying to uh, have the election this year because they want to have combined and synchronized elections in 2024, but obviously not everyone will say that. They will use the most immediate issue to uh, advance their political aims and strategy. Well, on that, you have just noted that um, the opposition parties are the much better positioned to gain from all of the conjecture around the local government elections. In your opinion, what does the current ruling party, which I imagine still harbors interest in retaining the votes that they have have uh, received in retaining the power that they were elected to occupy. What in, what in your opinion is the onus on them and the scale of the responsibility that they have to get the nation on side, to get their votership on side, to ensure that their votes don't switch hands from one party to any of the oppositions? Well, I mean, the ANC has to deal with a lot of issues, firstly being um, the corruption issues, and they're trying to do that by, you know, all of these step-aside provisions to try to show the public that, listen, what's serious. The problem is that the step-aside issues sometimes only touch uh, the high-ranking officials who are implicated in corruption, but not necessarily the municipal-level corruption. So if I know that the ANC is corrupt in my municipality, uh, even if, you know, Zelim Kize takes a step aside and goes on special leave, that's not going to help me in my locale. The other thing that they need to do is to deal with the factional issues that continue to plague them at this particular moment. And they're making some progress on that. I don't know if they will make enough progress uh, for an October electoral cycle, because as you recall, Jacob Zuma is going back uh, into the Amadou trial on the 19th of July, 2021. And, you know, uh, at the State Capture Commission, they've uh, suspended activities for a bit, but they still need to hear from President Cyril Ramaphosa. And those two events, uh, in and of themselves, could pose problems for the ANC because they, uh, you know, it's appearances by different uh, factional leaders. And we are now getting quite close to 2022 where the elective conference of the ANC is supposed to happen. And all of those uh, create challenges for um, the ANC. And as such, they may also not really have an appetite for an election this year because there's a lot that needs to be resolved and cleaned up within the organization for them to uh, have a strong front. Because as you say, they will uh, want to be in a position to take back municipalities that they lost, uh, as you recall, in 2016. Metro's uh, transferred power, Gauteng, uh, there was a lot of movement in uh, Johannesburg and in Swane. And, uh, you know, those things are not great uh, in Nelson Mandela Bay as well. And I'm sure the ANC would like to have a stronger showing in all three of those metros to try to um, make a comeback. And I'm hopeful, uh, not hopeful, but I, I think that they are hopeful that they can uh, even have a strong showing in the Western Cape because the Democratic Alliance has not been doing well in the local government elections. They've lost critical wards in the El Dorado Park to the Patriotic Alliance. And there are a few rival players in the Western Cape, such as, you know, the Good Party, uh, which could actually pose problems for the Democratic Alliance even there. So um, that's where I think the, the sentiment may be within the African National Congress right now um, in terms of their electoral prospects. But of course, they do enjoy electoral success. They've been doing well in the municipal by-elections. 
uh, the picked up seats that people may not have expected them to pick up. They do still have a well-organized, well-oiled machine and a lot of, you know, um, residual support that's enjoyed historically. And that always makes them a formidable opponent uh, in the electoral processes. Now, I'd like to circle back to um, what you mentioned, uh, what you mentioned briefly, should I say, about the movements being made by other parts of the African continent in uh, their fight against the COVID-19 pandemic in specific terms towards the number of vaccines that they have administered to their people compared to how many vaccines we have rolled out um, here in South Africa. When we think of this idea of COVID fatigue, we thus far most mostly spoken about it in a strictly South African context. And you keep a keen interest in not just the goings-on here in South Africa, but in other parts of the African continent as well. So when we talk about this idea of COVID fatigue, can you take me through your observations on how that has um, has, has been observed and how that, uh, on the, and the, state, the shape and the state of this idea of COVID fatigue in other parts of the African continent and how that is being addressed? And whether or not we as South Africa can look at any of the other members of the African continent as an example to effectively address address this idea of COVID fatigue. Well, Africa is an interesting um, case study when it comes to COVID as a whole, because some countries were never really hit hard by COVID to begin with, in the fact, in the sense that you know they had very low mortality rates from COVID nineteen, and as such, you know the attitudes in the countries differed somewhat. So for some people, for example, even though there is mask mandate, etc., but because their cases have been so low, um, there hasn't really been this um, adverse impact that has, I mean, if you think Ghana was one of the first countries to reopen and they didn't really have much of any surges and uh, their mortality rate has remained low. So when you look at some countries in Africa, there's not really been the threat of COVID as much as there has been in South Africa, but other countries uh, track more closely to South Africa, those countries being Morocco, Egypt, and in those particular countries, what what you see is that they have adopted the vaccines much faster um, than us, as we've we've spoken about earlier in Morocco, the vaccine rate right now um, is at 16% of the population, with uh, over about 10 million people having received at least one dose uh, which is more than the 16%, but looking at the fully vaccinated, they are currently at 16%. So those are the countries we can look to in terms of like trying to get some examples. But the real difference here that exists is, uh, one, in some of the uh, northern African countries, there is more observance of you know the rule of law in general and their cultural differences uh, with southern Africa where, you know, that kind of strict observance of rules is just not, you know, it's not the South African way, um, if I were to put it that way. Um, but uh, the other issue really is just that the vaccines came quicker and people were more ready to adopt them because they were not as affected by some of the cultural wars that have occurred in America that reduced vaccine acceptance and also some of the race-based skepticism because, as we discussed prior, you know, people in the, in the black community have been experimented on medically before and uh, as a result of that don't always trust institutions of authority when it comes to the provision of health care. Um, but that's not been a feature as much in uh, North Africa where they are really doing well uh, with the vaccine. So I don't know if there's much that we can take away from those particular regions except to 
note that, you know, they have uh, logistically done better than uh, Southern Africa. And as a means to conclude our discussion, a greater consideration of this idea of COVID fatigue. If we take the role that government and leadership and advice from health professionals completely out of the equation, and we position ourselves in a situation where the this COVID fatigue is being managed and policed by the society, the citizenship itself. We spoke about how various uh, members of the citizenship may not may not have ever believed in the severity of this virus to begin with, so that may that may inform their continued lapsed attitude towards the restrictions towards the the advent of this virus itself and versus the the contrast that that draws between that and those who have been going out of their way to follow restrictions to wear their masks to sanitize regularly to practice social distancing in your opinion what would be the most effective way of and i i don't i can't think of a better word to use than policing but in your opinion what what would be the most effective way to police this idea of covid fatigue in a way that doesn't alienate other members of the society that doesn't that doesn't villainize those who might not see what the big deal is that doesn't uh position those that are taking it seriously as uh as as martyrs or any kind or anything like that i'm curious about the ways in which and a, a degree of social harmony can be achieved through the active management and engagement amongst the society, amongst the citizenship, with this idea of COVID fatigue to manage it, to get, uh, to make sure that it doesn't, it doesn't get to a point where it overwhelms to the degree or to the extent that people opt not to follow these safety regulations and just do what they want. Well, perhaps we can take lessons from um, how the HIV issue was messaged at certain uh, points. I can't remember the name of the organization, but it used to have ambassadors and people who would work in communities to try to do some of the conscientizing work. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, uh, soul bodies or something to that effect. We, we may need to start thinking of those kind of things. Who are the community champions? Who are the people in the community who have the social skills, uh, you know, the social capital um, to have conversations in the community to keep the energy going, you know, and that may be the way that you can do it in a way without frustrating communities and make them feel like, you know, you're imposing, uh, you know, perfect standards on them. But it's, it's not an easy uh, question, and I don't know whether we can solve it, you know, in our one hour of discussion here. But maybe that can be something that goes some way towards doing it. And I also think that, um, you know, celebrities and high-profile people can do a little bit better in in how they conduct themselves in society because people sometimes see the celebrities themselves violating the COVID-19 regulations and restrictions and then they they also take it in and and do the same. So um, maybe those two interventions could be of assistance but really I think that COVID fatigue is just something that we're going to be living with and dealing with until we get to a point where the vaccine levels are sufficient.
We've just been joined by Mr. Jamie Mighty here on the COVID Report, who typically joins us uh, whenever we are spoken to and addressed by our President Cyril Ramaphosa with uh, further imp- updates on our fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. He's just joined us here on the show to talk us through this idea of COVID fatigue and the most effective way to keep everyone on side as the fight against COVID-19 continues. Jamie, as always, thank you so much for your time and your insight, and thank you so much for joining us here on the COVID Report. Thank you for having me. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1. Or streams via www.valfm.co.za.